Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 188. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Makino, our Father, our King. Lord, we meet once again together tonight to study your words. We ask that your Holy Spirit will be here and that he will allow us to understand the text in a fresh new light so that we can practically apply the things that we're learning. We don't want just want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. And so help us, Lord, to have a mindset to please you and to do the things that are pleasing to you. Help us to continue to turn away from sin and to confess our faults when we realize them and when, when you've revealed them to us. Continue to raise us up and strengthen us and give us a voice, uh, give us clarity, give us um, opportunities to share our witness with those around us. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. My name is Zara bin Lyman Hanavi. Let's talk about Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17, where we're having this discussion about Judaism versus Christianity, or are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? That's really um, the question on the table before us tonight. So let's jump right back into our study where we left off. What I want to do is, as mentioned last week, I want to read this passage that we've been borrowing out of Matthew about the three parts to this parable um, about uh, fasting uh, at a wedding, about patching up an old cloth, you know, an old garment, and um, pouring new wine into old wineskins. That's how it shows up in Matthew. What I want to do is actually read the Luke rendering, because there are some extra details that show up in this story. In fact, there's actually a fourth parable or a fourth um, anecdote uh, that Yeshua uses that shows up in the uh, Luke version. The Mark story is similar to Matthew. It only has three elements like A, B, C, uh, but the Luke version has four, A, B, C, D. So let's read the Luke version and um, kind of work with that for a moment. So um, this is ESV in front of you on your screen right now. Let me just read verses 33 through verse 39. And they said to him, disciples of John fast often and offer prayers and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Verse 34. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come, starting verse 35, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Verse 36. He also told them a parable. And we see this is in the Luke account is where the word parable actually shows up. In regards to the uh, the cloth and the wine skin, things like that. Versus Matthew doesn't say anything about a parable. So, verse 36, he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Notice in this version, um, it's not like you go out and buy a new patch, like maybe Mark, I'm sorry, like maybe Matthew implies. But here in Luke, you actually um, take a piece from an existing new garment and you're going to patch up an old garment with that new piece. But it doesn't matter about that extra detail because the, the application is still the same. Yeshua continues, he says, If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. So you end up with two garments that are ruined. You have an old new garment that you rip the patch out of, and you're going to sew it to the old batch, and... um. They're not going to match up. Notice he doesn't say anything about washing or or anything like that. You know, if, uh, the the shrinking uh, patch, the new the part that Matthew talks about. He's simply still using similar analogy or parable, uh, common sense factor going on 
um, to introduce that there's some incompatibility between old and new items. That's really the central point, I believe, of his um, analogy. And there, in verse 37, he jumps into the um, second uh, of or uh, the really the um, the third of three elements to the story. The first would have been the wet the the uh, wedding feast. The um, second is the the garment. The third now is this wine. He says in verse 37, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. This one sounds very close to Matthew's rendering. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. So again, kind of working from the common sense factor of old and new and the incompatibilities between the two. If you simply just thrust the two together without any other um, conditioning or factors that are uh, that take place. And then here in the Luke rendering, by way of interest, uh, after he continues in verse 30, 38, he says, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, which is the closing clause of the, uh, the, the, the third element. He introduces this fourth um, kind of common sense anecdote or parable that Matthew leaves out. I can't remember if Mark includes the this fourth element. I don't remember that he does. We can go look at that next week. But notice that Yeshua says in verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. End. Now, we talked last week about how there's basically two general ways to view this story here in um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We could either go the route of the allegory, where we take the elements of the story, we treat the, the parable as if it's teaching a spiritual lesson that's greater than the elements themselves. And so when we go into allegory or homily or some type of midrash or something like that, it's not necessary to take all of the elements of the parable and make them have a a one-to-one corresponding uh, assigning role. Rather, we're working from the general spiritual application, the greater, the, the, in other words, the thrust behind Yeshua's words of using the parable. So in the allegory, the main point of all of the elements seems to be that there's an old way of doing things and a new way of doing things. And in this, um, in this, in the story, old and new sometimes flash and it's necessary to make a choice between one or the other. And in most allegorical treatments of this section, done by Christian commentaries and, and pastors and, and seminarians and, and the like, you'll often find that the spiritual application between the incompatibility of old to new is that what Yeshua was telling his listeners, and by incl- inclusion, we readers of today, what Yeshua was trying to convey was that the old system of God's, the old system of approaching God through the... Uh, the commandments, excuse me, the commandments given to Moses, uh, the sacrifices, the the Sabbaths and the festivals and the rituals and all those things. That old system needs to give way to the new way of approaching God through faith in Jesus and being filled with the Spirit and living a life according to um, loving your neighbor and things like that. Um, and that's the general way that historic Christianity has interacted with these passages about the old and the new clashing and incompatibility issues. To be sure, this uh, ideal or mindset is given a name, a title, a label. It's called 
basically it's called replacement theology or supersessionism. Some forms of dispensationalism also borrowed this ideology and theology. The idea that the Old Testament is out, the New Testament is in. The people of Israel are on their way out. They're being transitioned out. The book of Acts is seen as a transition book for them. The new people of God that are replacing the old people are going to be the Gentile Christians, as it were, the body of Christ. Going along with this same mindset of replacement and things like that of old and new clashing and old being replaced by the new is the idea that the law of Moses is out and the law of Christ is in. The covenant of Moses is out. The covenant with Jesus is in. So Old Testament, New Testament, things like that. Israel's out. I already mentioned the Gentile church is in. Um, we also have um, with that the idea of um, sacrifice, animal sacrifices are out and the sacrifice of Jesus is going to become uh, what's in now, right? So his sacrifice replaces their, uh, the animal sacrifices. And then on and on, we could kind of keep going with this. Essentially, we no longer have to keep the law as Christians because that system is being transitioned out. It's on its way out and it's going to be replaced by a new system of um, approaching God through keeping the law of Christ uh, or the New Testament laws or the laws that are written on our heart versus laws that are written on stone and things like that. So this is the discussion that we're having in this Judaism v. Christianity. Is it true then that Judaism is incompatible with Christianity to the point that what Yeshua is teaching is something radically new that replaces the old system? The old is out, out with the old, in with the new. Is that really what is going on. That's the way we're interacting with this particular passage. That's one way, the allegory. The second way to interact with this passage is to not see it as Yeshua teaching some sort of spiritual truth, but rather he is simply teaching a practical application based on common sense of the day. Common sense says you don't fast while the wedding, you don't fast, uh, the wedding guests don't fast while the bridegroom is there. You don't fast and mourn at a wedding. That's common sense. Why would you want to be gloom and doom, you know, all gloomy and sad at a wedding? A wedding is a time of rejoicing. So that's common sense, you know. In other words, duh, everybody should be rejoicing at a wedding. So that's common sense lesson number one. Common sense lesson number two out of four in the Luke rendering. Number two, if you've got an old cloth that needs to be patched up, common sense says if you're going to buy a brand new patch, you either need to wash it first so that it shrinks prior to attaching it to the old garment, or you don't pull it from a new piece of garment. You pull it from an older, another old garment and you attach it there. Either way, you condition the patch somehow before you attach it to the older garment. Otherwise, you end up with disaster. So common sense kicks in and the practical application is simply the incompatibility between the old and new forces you to condition the old before the new can be applied. All right, that's uh, common sense number two. Number three, if you've got wine and it's new wine and you put it into old wineskins because of fermentation and the swelling of, of, of um, you know, the gases that, 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 and, and fermentation during the fermentation process, you're going to end up with a disaster. You're not only going to burst the wineskin, the old one, which can't stretch anymore because it's, it's already stretched as much as it can due to age, but you're also going to lose all the new wine. So common sense kicks in and says you need to condition the wineskin somehow before you introduce the new wine into it. You need to stretch it or, or do something, or you just put new wine into new wineskins or fresh wineskins or something like that. So again, common sense factor. No 
no need to spiritually allegor allegorize and say the old is replacing the new church is replacing israel or anything like that it's just yeshua's way of saying duh think and use your thinking brain it's common sense right and then here's the funny thing the last element in verse 39 common sense says that if you drink old wine and you drink new wine common sense says the old is better why because new wine still takes like tastes like basically just grape juice or um you know vinegar or something like that you want the old wine because it now has been setting for a while and it's been aged and it's 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 uh, I'm not a wine drinker myself, but just follow along with me. Those of you who are can figure this out, or those of you who drink alcohol. I don't. I'm not even an alcohol drinker, but the point being is the aged alcohol is desired, preferable to the newer alcohol. Even by today's standards, you know, 2,000 years later from this uh, occurrence, this story, 2,000 years later, we still um, want older wine over newer wine in the case when we're trying to get the, the, the more desirable and more precious taste, right? I mean, go to a liquor store and ask them for the most expensive liquors and you're going to find they're typically the ones that are the oldest, right? So if you have like a vintage liquor, a vintage wine or something like that, it's going to fetch a heftier price tag, uh, than the newer stuff that was, you know, that was just, um, uh, bottled, you know, a month ago or a week ago or whatever, right? So that's kind of the idea behind the common sense factor. Now, watch this before I go much further into this parable. If you consider the common sense factor and use that to bolster your allegory, right, which the allegory is based on the common sense factors of those three elements, if we only use Matthew's account and I think Mark's account, and we skip Luke for a second. We skip the last part where it says, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. If, according to historic Christianity, what Jesus is teaching is that the new is better than the old, and that his new teachings are going to be replacing the old way of approaching God through the Jewish law system and law keeping and, and all those rituals, all those are old and those are out, and the new covenant is in, the new testament is in, the new people of God are in, uh, the new scriptures are in, all that stuff, and the new is better then that seems all well and fine if you just read Matthew and Mark. But if you read Luke, then suddenly when Jesus says in verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good, suddenly that analogy disrupts the whole uh, allegorical picture. Suddenly Jesus is, in, is implying no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good, or in some versions it renders the old is better. Wait a minute, Jesus, if you're new, that if the new thing that you're introducing is supposed to be superior to the old, then why would you use an analogy or a parable in the final list of your analogies in Luke and say, if you compare the old and the new, everyone wants the old because it's better. The old is good. See, see how that, that upsets the apple cart to the analogy or the, al the allegorical uh, version of the new is replacing the old because the new is superior to the old, right? If Judaism is the old and Christianity is the new, well, then basically what Yeshua is saying in verse 39 is, no one after experiencing Judaism desires Christianity, for he says, Judaism is good. Or we can just fill in blank with whatever, you know, no one after following after the law of Moses desires the law of Christ, because he says, the law of Moses is good. Or, no one after being a part of the people known as Israel uh, desires to be a part of the people known as Christianity or the church, for he says, Judaism is good or better. 
the understanding the logical uh, uh, disconnect or the the problem uh, that this last little element, verse 39, presents, throws a, a monkey wrench into the whole allegorical version of, um, hey, you was just trying to tell us that the new is better and this is his new system. All right. So having said all of that, let's continue looking at my own commentary uh, from a, a messianic point of view. We've already worked through multiple um, Christian commentaries, Pastor John MacArthur, Pastor John um, uh, Piper, Pastor David Guzik, uh, GotQuestions.org, and things like that. This is the historical Christian view that's typically going to launch into the allegorical uh, midrash homily sermon perspective of Jesus is telling us that the system known as Judaism is on its way out and it's it's run its course and blah, blah, blah. That's the perspective you're going to find if you read your average Christian commentary. Go back and listen to my own studies and you'll see what I was talking about. Now let's look at this perspective from the lens of someone who doesn't believe that the Torah is on its way out, that Judaism is being replaced by Christianity and things like that. We're looking at this through the lens of Dr. David Stern, author of the complete Jewish Bible, as well as the author of the Jewish New Testament commentary and things like that. He's a Messianic Jew, which means he's a Jewish believer in Jesus who believes that the law of Moses is still relevant for us in our lives on a practical everyday basis. So he doesn't subscribe to replacement theology, supersessionism, and forms of dispensationalism that teaches that the church is in, the Judaism's out, laws out, uh, Christianity's in, New Testament's in, things like that. I myself would also fall into the same camp of of disagreeing with supersessionism, replacement theology. I think all of those are bad um, ideologies. And I think you should pitch them. So David Stern continues. We've, we've been looking at this over the last few weeks. Let's pick it up where we left off. Uh, last week, we read this very end of this commentary. I'll read our paragraph. I'll read this part again. He says, if one tries to put new wine, uh, and this is David Stern, he says, which is messianic faith, into old wineskins, which is traditional Judaism, the faith is lost and Judaism is ruined. But if Judaism is freshly prepared, that is reconditioned so that it can accommodate trust in Yeshua, the Messiah, then both the faith and the renewed Judaism, which is Messianic Judaism, both of them are preserved. So what David Stern is presenting us with is an alternative way to understand the analogy. He's still working from the, the, the allegory somewhat but he's changing the some of the elements he's realizing that it's not necessary to what, what have i been saying throw the baby out with the bathwater. we don't have to do that instead what we can do is rec recognize that if we reform the baby um or recondition the water or whatever we can throw out the bathwater, but we don't have to do, lose the baby in the process what david stern is suggesting is Instead of Yeshua coming to simply rip up the old system and replace it with a brand new one, including the law of Moses being replaced by a completely new law known as the law of Christ, and the Old Testament being replaced by the New Testament, Israel's place being uh, discarded in favor of a new people group known as the church, etc., etc. Instead of all of that taking place, instead, what Yeshua came to do is simply reform the system. In other words, we are preserving the original elements, but we're taking them back to their original God-intended purposes. We have to remember that the Law of Moses is not Moses' invention. It's only, it's only called the Law of Moses because he was the um, agent that was used by God to pen the words, to write it out. He's, he's the one that, was, that God inspired to um, write the words down. But the words are God's. 
So to that extent, we have to remind ourselves that God's words are pure. They're perfect. They're just. They're right. They're, they're spiritual. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 7. So God's words had no fault. They, they didn't need to be replaced. God's words aren't um, def defective so that his son needs to come and um, dismantle them and you know decommission them and mothball the law of Moses and bring in a brand new set of laws and structures and strictures and 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 um, rules and standards and things like that. Reinvent the wheel and recreate what it means to be sin uh, to sin and to um, to be righteous. There's no need to do all that. Instead, what Jesus came was to and as I call it. Change the old man into a new man from the inside out. This section is called Old Man, New Man, and Messianic Judaism. What Yeshua came to bring was reform to the old system by ripping the sin out of the man and putting a new heart in there. Take the old heart out and put a new heart in and help them understand God has always desired obedience to his words and his ways, but the way we go about that is allowing God's spirit to change us from the inside out. And thus, we take the same person that we started out with, and we simply become born again, but we're still the, it's still Ariel that's born again, right? I'm not, as I was talking last week, it's not, um, in my born again experience, I don't suddenly change into a different person, right? Uh, it's not like I go from being Ariel and suddenly I turn into Bob or something like that. It doesn't work. So, uh, David Stern is suggesting, why don't we look at Yeshua's, uh, analogy, if it indeed it is an analogy or a parable or a uh, uh, an allegory, if indeed that's what Yeshua is teaching, if it's not just a simple common sense where we don't need to where we don't need an, an an allegory at all, if it's simply just common sense lesson of hey, don't the, the old and the new are incompatible, just deal with that issue. Because I heard a few authors talk about hey, he's not even dealing with allegory; he's just talking about common sense. Why do we have to add something where Yeshua doesn't say there's a spiritual application? Like he does with other parables, right? Yeshua will often give a parable, and then his, his disciples will sit there scratching their head, trying to figure out what the parable is. And Yeshua will look at them and say, what, you still don't understand? Let me explain it to you. And then Yeshua will tell, say, you know, the, the, the kingdom of heaven is like this and this, and this is what it means, and these are what the pieces mean, and he, he um, uh, articulates, you know, what all the, uh, the mystery is. But this time he doesn't do any of that. So maybe it is just common sense, right? So, um, um, Look at this. David Stern continues, uh, speaking of his perspective. He says, this understanding about that, that Yeshua is not here to replace the old with the new. This understanding is undergirded by the writer's careful choice of words. And we talked about this in the past, and now here's David Stern's articulation of it. The word new, which in the Greek is naos, wine, and the word fresh, which in the Greek is kainos, wineskins. And so, um, you, you'll, if you care to go and stop and look up the original Greek words behind the text, uh, but we can just see this if I just highlight just two, two verses. In verse 17 of the Matthew rendering, Jesus said, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins, but if it is, the skins burst and the wines are spilled and the skins are destroyed. The final clause says, But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. This is the ESV. Notice Jesus doesn't say, New wine is put into new wineskins. He doesn't use, this, use the word naos twice. The word rendered new in our English here is naos. Or you can say neos or neos, something like that. So naos, where we get the word neo in our English. Like the character in the, uh, um, uh, what was those movies? The um, Matrix. Yeah, the Matrix, uh, neo, right? So his name means new, neo. So new wine is not put into new wineskins. 
Jesus says new wine is put into fresh wineskins. Some English translations say new wine is put into new wineskins. That English translation is hiding a little bit of the Greek. And I realize that the word neos and kainos are not hard, fast, um, different uh, differences in meaning. There's a little bit of overlap in the nuance as well. So don't get too hung up on the neos and kainos. However, when the application allows for it, we can safely um, go away, walk away with the idea that um, neos can mean something uh, just brand new uh, chronologically, never before on the scene, like um, you know, babies brought into the world, born, that he would be a new baby, meaning he's never before existed in the world, he's brand new, new on the scene. Or like when I bought this laptop that I'm using right now, this MacBook Air, it was brand new to me. It was not a refurbished laptop. It was not a, 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 um, a you know a laptop that someone else previously owned or anything like that. It was brand new, factory fresh. Uh, I think they uh, the manufacturer date was like three weeks prior to the day I date I bought it because you can look these things up. So this would be a neos laptop. By comparison, the Greek word kainos. Some people say kainos or uh, something to that effect, kainos. Uh, but kainos is how I pronounce it. Uh, the Fresh wineskins, the word fresh there can include the nuance of reconditioned, something that was brought back to life but previously existed. So in this example with the laptop, if I would have purchased a refurbished laptop or a previously owned laptop that was simply restored, understand my um, uh, uh, example here? In those cases, if I was speaking Greek, I should describe this laptop as a Kainos laptop because it's not brand new. It's new to me, so that's fine. But um, uh, qualitatively, it's the same laptop that someone else was using or that Apple owned. Um, they simply reconditioned it or refreshed it or refurbished it or something like that. So, um, so instead of quant uh, uh, chronologically new, it's simply qualitatively new. That would might be the way to interact with these two words. One is uh, chronologically new, like new in time, and the other is qualitatively new. So even in the Luke account, it's uh, Yeshua does that as well. Uh, verse 38, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, right? Looked it up in the Greek, same concept. Well, that's what David Stern is alluding to. Let's continue. Naos, David Stern says, means new in respect to time, what I just said, implying immaturity or lack of development. Kainos means new or renewed in respect to quality, contrasting with old or not renewed and implying superiority. So those are the two words. Again, sometimes there's a little bit of overlap in the Greek, right? In other words, it's not that naos always and 100% always means new in time and kainos always and 100% always means uh, new in quality because indeed if you use the word new in, in, in um, connection with the word covenant as in new covenant and you look up all the passages in the new testament that use the greek phrase new covenant what you'll find is that some of the verses use the Greek word neos when it comes to covenant, which is diatheke. So it's a neos diatheke. And some of the verses use the word kainos diatheke. So sometimes it's a new covenant, and other times it's a renewed covenant or something to that effect. So the point being is there are aspects that can bleed, bleed over, uh, carry over from one verse to the other. So don't get 100% hung up. Don't hang all of your eggs in one basket. Put all your eggs, hang all your eggs, put all your eggs in one basket in, in that regards. But David Stern continues, and we'll, we'll uh, finish off tonight with this part. David Stern says, Old wineskins have lost their strength 
and elasticity so that they cannot withstand the pressure of new wine still fermenting, right? There's the common sense aspect. Although an old wineskin can be restored to service, watch this, if its useful qualities are renewed. So um, Judaism doesn't need to be discarded if we understand that Jesus was coming to bring and restore Judaism back to its original God intended uh, purpose or version, reset the whole thing, right? Um, it's almost like Judaism when it was, and I'll close with this Judaism was given as a lifestyle to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, because otherwise they, their lifestyle was basically Egyptian. They'd been in slavery for so long in Egypt that they didn't really know what it meant. In fact, there was no way to know what it meant to live according to God's standards because God hadn't given them corporately a people group standards anyway right sinai even hadn't happened yet they didn't have the law of moses they lived in egypt they lived as egyptians basically um i mean they lived like the egyptians lived so their their lifestyle and their mindset was basically egyptian but when god set them free from egypt from egypt and broke that legal tie with the pharaoh he brought them to the foot of sinai and gave them a new lifestyle Right, which was contradictory to and and uh, different, way different than the lifestyle they used to lead. Right, um, suddenly their life of of believing that there's a pantheon of gods and multiple gods and things like that, or that, that Pharaoh was God. Suddenly, their life is new. No, there's only one God. Suddenly, you know, um, holiness took on a whole new uh, factor. Um, you know, and sin and the description of sin was all suddenly defined in sharp terms. And so the point I'm trying to make is that at that time one could imagine that the version of Judaism that God was giving to the Jewish people or a Hebrew lifestyle or whatever, whatever, call it what you want. If you don't, if you feel uncomfortable calling it Judaism, I'm fine with that. But the religious lifestyle and the, uh, the, the way of living that God was giving to them at Sinai was brand new to them. And yet it was pure. It's perfect. All right. Had no flaws. It was only after the people began uh, taking these new laws with them into the land and tried to implement them, but yet they still wanted to hold on to their idolatry and their old habits and their old ways of approaching people and 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 um, misusing their neighbors and and dis, uh, uh, mistreating their neighbors and things like that, and uh, uh, you know lusting after all the gods around them and and all of that stuff that they basically began to pervert and twist and make gods lifestyle into something it wasn't designed to be so by the you know fast forward all the time by the time we get to yeshua's day uh you know a thousand years into the future 1500 years from the time of giving Mo law of moses or something like that now the version of judaism that the jewish people were practicing in the first century was so twisted and and, and perverse that it you couldn't even tell it was really the law of Moses anymore. It was really just the traditions of humans, of traditions of the rabbis and the elders, and 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 um, the the policies and halacha of, of the leaders and whoever was in power and things like that. And it was you know policy built on top of policy and and you know uh, incorrect ruling on top of incorrect ruling and all that. So you get my point. Yeshua came to cut through all that and restore Judaism, reset the whole thing. In today's terminology, if we're talking movies, we would say Yeshua came to reboot the franchise, right? Um, if you're talking computer terminology, he came to um, wipe the whole thing clean, but do a, re a reinstall of the original operating system. He doesn't want to um, 
lose the original operating system. He wants he simply has to get rid of all that bloatware and the malware and the viruses and all this other stuff that's uh, slowing the computer down and making it really buggy. So he's gonna reboot and he maybe he has to. He's when I say wipe it clean, I'm saying he's not um he's not going to reinstall a, a new operating system that didn't exist before he's going to reinstall the same old one but it's now fresh like it was out of the factory like 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 the the um original manufacturer intended it right your computer squeaky clean it's just like zippy fast so that'll do it for our look at this particular passage we'll pick this up again next week but that'll do it for judaism v christianity are judaism and christianity incompatible with one another these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, and I am a Torah teacher at a real life congregation in Colorado, the Harvest Congregation, otherwise known as Kehilatunua, the Harvest. You can join us online at www.graftedin.com. Or uh, you can visit us in person week after week and join us for our Sabbath services. But if you're still uncomfortable getting out, be sure to um, go to our website at graftedin.com and uh, see the link on my screen right now. Um, the uh, the image on my screen right now it points to the YouTube videos that are uploaded to YouTube in case you'd like to just simply watch your uh, Messianic service online. Uh, please feel free to do so that way. Speaking of online resources, why not find me online at www.tetzetorah.com. It's my own personal Torah teaching website that's spelled T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com, tetzetorah.com, where I park most of my uh, written commentaries. Um, you can see the cluster there right now on the homepage. That represents basically the core of um, most of my written commentaries. It's not the exhaustive list there. If you click each uh, section, you'll find that there's other um, um, commentaries that are available. But feel free to browse around, bookmark the page. I try to update uh, things as often as I can. Um, but if not, be sure to visit my YouTube channel. That's right, I've got a YouTube channel. You can find me on YouTube's um, platform at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetzay Torah Ministries, all one word spelled out there. And as you can see from my uh, image there, I update my channel daily. Typically, I'm uploading videos once a day, twice a day, something like that. So I'm quite busy. So be sure to do take one of the actions that you see dancing on your screen right now to subscribe, hit the um, bell for notifications. Um, share the content with your friends and family members, leave comments um, and things like that. That way you'll always be in the loop whenever uh, something new is happening on my YouTube channel. These live internet studies are brought to you week after week. And if you'd like to join us week after week, which again, you're certainly invited to, you're going to need to get access to Skype somehow. And the blue Skype button that you can see on my screen right now, which is available on my um, Tour website, if you were to click that, Anytime during the live studies, it will open up Skype right in your browser, especially if you're using either a desktop or a laptop computer. But again, the important details, we meet Saturday afternoons from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. And that's the central daylight time. It's taught via Skype. And um, there's no uh, uh, other software really needed unless you're um, using maybe a smart device or a smartphone. Then you might need some other software. But if not, be sure to, while you're on my website, scroll all the way to the very, very bottom and to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and 
prayerfully consider partnering with me to help me continue to bring these Torah teachings to you free of charge. And the way you can do that is you can give to my ministry and the little yellow donate button there is where you can um, send your uh, donations in. I appreciate your generosity and your prayers. And um, as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. And we basically completed our little mini excursus where we were reading through the um, chapter 8 of Romans and we were mining it for all of its uh, spiritual nutrition, pun intended there, because this is a section on who or what is the Holy Spirit. But what we're actually doing is we've been working through a list that Karn put together and viewing all of these verses on the Holy Spirit. But what I've done in conjunction Conjunction with that is I brought in a commentary by a Christian gentleman, uh, Roberto Pereira, I believe his name is pronounced, and his commentary is a commentary on Paul's use of spirit terminology and the way Paul interacted with the word spirit, which is the Greek word pneuma or pneuma, depending on however you want to pronounce it. And so let's pick up this commentary. I read parts of it a few weeks back, but because um, we we kind of skipped around a bit, I jumped around a bit, I read a little bit of it, and then read the uh, 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 Romans chapter 8 material. Let's go back and pick up some of the pieces that I already read and just start over. And this way I'll read uh, from start to finish and try to interject as little as possible. Most of the commentary is self-explanatory, so I shouldn't have to um, stop and explain too much of it. I'll put a link to the original commentary in the um, description below the video uh, so you can see where I'm getting this information from. All right, let's start out. You can see on my screen, he has got a paragraph entitled, God is One. And here's what he has to say. The concept of unity, right? We're talking about the Bible and uh, God and the Spirit and things like that. The concept of unity stems from the fact that he is God of both Jews and Gentiles. And we read uh, this in Romans 3, Romans 10, and Galatians 3. God is also the father of the uncircumcised as well as the circumcised, we read in Romans chapter 4. And the uh, the God, uh, the only God in his relation with human beings in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Since there are no other gods. So God is one. This is something that Unitarians agree on and something that Trinitarians agree on. God is one. There is but one God, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the true 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and the only wise God, Romans chapter 16, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and the only source of spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, as well as Ephesians chapter 4. So, God is one. And that's really where we need to start whenever we're having these discussions on the ontology of God, right? Trying to figure out how God is broken down, right? How many beings is he? Uh, what's his makeup? Is he one person, three persons, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Let's now talk about God being three. This is where my Unitarian uh, Christian brothers are going to have sharp disagreements with me because the level, the charges leveled against we Trinitarians that supposedly there are three gods. And this is uh, confusing, especially if you don't understand that we're not um, believing in three gods. We're not teaching three gods. When we say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we're talking about one being who relates to us as three persons, not merely as three disguises. That's what we might call modalism and some forms of oneness Pentecostalism actually uh, espouse to that type of theology where there's one God or one uh, uh, divine being known as God whose name happens to be Jesus, who when he wants to wear a mask 
or a disguise or an avatar that looks like the father he does so so he can interact with us and we think it's the father but in reality it's jesus wearing a mask and then when he wants to interact with us so that we think it's jesus he puts on his jesus mask and then when he wants to interact with us and we think it's the holy spirit he puts on his holy spirit mask but in reality it's one being it's not three persons so there's just one being uh and his name is jesus so that's kind of the oneness pentecostal perspective um, I think Christadelphians also hold something similar to that. Iglesia Cristo, maybe as well. I, I'm, I'm not 100% certain, but I know they're non-Trinitarian. And then we have the garden variety Unitarian Christian perspective that says, no, we don't have to talk about masks at all. We just have one God, right? He's a singular being. And then we have Jesus, who is his highest and best creation. He's the very first thing that God created. And then through Jesus, or Jesus did the creating himself, everything else got created, including all the angels, all the heavens and the earth and, and the universe and stars and everything else, the, the Milky Way and the galaxies and all the, the microorganisms in the earth. And everything was created by Jesus. Uh, but Jesus is not God. He's not a, he, you, we might considering his powers, we might call him a God, like a little God, a lesser God, a mini God, a mini me, whatever you want to call him but a demigod um, but in the end he's a creature he's a construct he's something that god whipped up out of god's imagination uh, and even then when when god first uh, uh put this being together he wasn't called jesus then he was simply the eternal word or the logos or the wisdom whatever names that unitarian christians give him uh, or it some of them call him it and it's only until this man the human being hit the earth the one who was born came out of the womb of mary that guy yeah he's called jesus and he's been deified and glorified and, and um uh you know theosified or whatever um uh he's been um he's been brought to this place where you know he reached nirvana i guess where god exalts him and gives him the right to use his very name and we must worship him because god says we must but in the end in the end it all boils down to Jesus or the eternal word is not God. He's not eternally existent. He is someone that came into existence or really, I call it Star Wars theology. He came into existence when? A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's when this, this being came into existence, but not God. God is, of course, self-existent has existed from eternity, has no beginning and has no end. But this other being that has godlike powers, he's the Star Wars guy, right? He was born a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. The, the, he was begotten from God. Okay, so that's the general perspective from the non-Trinitarian view. Now let's read the Trinitarian view. God is three. This author says, while we may have problems to determine the number of divine beings from the Old Testament, Paul uses specific Trinitarian formulations to present the existence of three divine beings. And these three uh, divine beings are, are um, represented in the New Testament scriptures, uh, the apostolic scriptures, using Greek words. We have Theos for God, um, the Father. We have Kurios, uh, Lord, uh, or Huios, Son, so both of those uh, representing the Son, uh, Kurios and Huios. And then we have um, Pneuma representing the Spirit. So more often than not, in the Bible, not with not 100% without exception, often if, if you find the Greek word Theos, it's referring to God, the Father. Sometimes the word Lord, Kurios, is referring to God the Father as well, but more often than not, Theos is, is God. And then Kurios has been uh, chosen to represent the Lord Jesus, the Lord Yeshua. Sometimes Huios, Son, but uh, Kurios is the favorite title that's assigned to Yeshua, the Son. And then Pneuma 
is also sometimes the Holy Spirit, often it's the Holy Spirit, but often there's uh, times, I'm sorry, sometimes uh, Pneuma is assigned to the Son, and sometimes Pneuma is assigned to um, God the Father. And there's even times when um, uh, Kurios is assigned to the Spirit. Like Paul says in Corinthians, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. The Lord is the Spirit? Kurios is the Pneuma? Right, so um, just follow along with me in this commentary, and it won't be terribly confusing. The author continues. He clearly distinguishes the three beings referring to him, speaking of Paul, referring to them as one Spirit, one Lord, one God. In the book of Ephesians chapter four and First Corinthians chapter twelve. So notice the impact of that. Paul realizes there's one God. But Paul also begun, has come to the realization through the power of the Spirit and the revelation of the mystery of God that God is a complex unity. He's one God, but his, his nature is complex, right? And this goes all the way back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where God said, let us make man in our image, right? The us and the our, the plural language that's you know, drastically introduced into the narrative shocks the reader. What? I thought Elohim was the only one who created the heavens and the earth. You know, who's this us and we and our and things like that? Oh, but wait a minute. Elohim itself is a word that connotes um, plural in some form or fashion or, or multiple in some form or fashion, right? It's, it's a word that can uh, uh, represent multiples, and yet it's still used with singular verbs. So there is mystery behind God's um, uh, uh, unity within um, plurality, right? God and Paul begins to sense this, but he has to continue to remind us that there's one Spirit, one Lord, one God, right? They're not three gods, three spirits, three lords, or even two. Even Binitarianism doesn't find its support in the Apostolic Scriptures, although many Unitarians are fond of trying to remind me that the first century Christians of the New Testament didn't hold to a Trinitarian formula the way that the Church Fathers later formulated them in the, in the later creeds of the third and fourth centuries and onward. Uh, but we don't have to say that just because they didn't have these creedal formulas that they didn't understand the concept of a multipersonal God, a God who uh, is never less three persons but one God, because Paul gives us not more than three, but I'm sorry, um, not less than three, but more than one. So he doesn't say there's one Lord, one Spirit, one on God, and then one, he does introduce like a fourth element. So um, Paul limits his use of the persons to three, and that's about all we need. The author continues. He mentions, speaking of Paul, he mentions the three together in Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, if you believe that Paul wrote Hebrews, which I don't. And in other words, the three are mentioned together in nine of the 14 letters of Paul. So that's what we're dealing with by way of um, data, raw data. On the other hand, there are several passages where two of the three beings appear as a common source of blessing. And this would be the Father and the Son. On one hand, right, we got Romans 6, um, 1 Corinthians 15, and we got Christ and the Spirit on the other hand in Romans uh, 8 and 2 Corinthians 3 and Galatians 4 and Philippians 1. So what Paul does is he's got these kind of openings, these greetings to his letters, and more often than not, he's like, grace and peace, I'm paraphrasing, grace and peace to you from the from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, something to that effect. That's his kind of standard uh, default uh, templated opening to many of his letters. Even if you look at the Greek, it's like identical. That's why I said use the word template. 
It's like Paul had this memorized and he would open his letters with greeting using the two more prominent persons of the Godhead, the Trinity, God, the father and God, the son, the spirit. You have to remember, he plays a more of a backseat role uh, in the Trinity. There's a hierarchy to the Trinity, right? The father is at the top of the hierarchical chain. And below that, we have the son who's subservient to the father. And then below that, we have the spirit who's subservient to the father and the son. We have the spirit proceeding from the father. So the father, again, is at highest in the order. We have the son be, being eternally be, begotten from the father. So again, the father is the source. This is why the Greek fathers, the Greek church uh, fathers uh, refer to God as the arche, the source, the, the fountainhead of all that is the beginning of everything. That's why uh, God is referred to as the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He's, the, he's that which from which everything else draws its power, its source, its authority, its purpose, etc., etc. This is why it's God the Father who, in a Unitarian mindset, created the Son, not the other way around. Okay, we never have the son uh, ordering the father around, right? And yet, according to, and I'll show you verses where, according to Unitarian theology, this becomes a problem if, in fact, you know, the paraclete that sent, you know, in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Yeshua introduces this idea of the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit who's going to be sent, who, who proceeds from the father, but the son also sends the paraclete. If, according to Unitarian theology, the Spirit is simply another name for God, then what we end up is a verse where, or passages where Yeshua is ordering the God the Spirit around. Well, that doesn't work according to the hierarchy of what the Bible already establishes, where God is the is authority, the one who's giving Jesus the, his marching orders. But suddenly Jesus says, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send, whom I will send, all right, the Father supplies the Spirit, but I'm going to send him, and he's going to bear witness to me. He's not going to speak on his own authority. He's only going to do the things that I tell him. He's only going to um, take his orders from me. He's going to remind you of the words that I uh, already gave you. How is it that this Spirit is subservient to Jesus if the Spirit is merely God the Father? Okay, you Unitarians out there, I know you're just going to love to jump into my YouTube comments and start sending me all your explanations about that one, okay? But think about that one for a moment. All right, let's continue with this uh, author's words. In the apostolic greetings and blessings, Paul always mentions God, our God, and our God, our God, and our Lord Jesus Christ. However, in 2 Corinthians uh, 13, um, the three are joined together. Quote, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. End quote. Notice that in this quotation from Corinthians, that Paul gives the three persons exactly what we would expect if we're dealing with personality. You cannot have a relationship, an ongoing relationship, a reciprocal relationship with an inanimate object. You can love the thing that you're describing, you can greatly appreciate it, but try as you might, it cannot reciprocate your feelings. So God, the, the God, the father is a person. He, dis, he displays personality traits, just like humans do. Even though he's not a human being, he's not on the same level as per people. But, but if you read through the Bible, nevertheless, his qualities and attributes uh, are similar because remember, we're made in his image. We also have personality. Therefore he has personality. He has humor. We have humor. We have, um, um, uh, uh, what we might call um, 
uh, uh, feelings, he has feelings, okay? You know, you can hurt God's feelings, right? We love, we can love, he can love. We can hate, he can hate. Uh, we can be um, uh, angry, he can be angry, okay? So we have been, we've been made in the image of God. It's not like God is a robot who is uncaring. So it's natural to understand that we can have love with God because we can have love with one another, right? I can love my fellow neighbor. I can love my, my, uh, my, the humans around me, right? My, my family members. I can express love and they can reciprocate it, right? Not only can I give love, but they can give it back and I can receive it. Why? Because of this idea of personality, right? But I can't do that with this computer I'm working with. I mean, I can love this MacBook Air all I want, but guess what? It can't reciprocate. It can't reciprocate. So God can love and we can love back. Likewise, Yeshua, he can extend grace to us and we can extend grace to one another, right? I can extend grace to my fellow humans. They can extend grace back to me. Yeshua can extend grace to us and we can receive that grace and reciprocate it. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. But watch this. Suddenly, the Unitarians want to tell me that the Holy Spirit is the impersonal force of God, that he's the, the power that emanates from God's fingertips. Right? Like the Emperor Palpatine shooting purple lightning from his fingers. Like, yeah, that doesn't work that way. You can tell I'm a little bit heated, right? Um, we can't have fellowship with the Holy Spirit if he's an impersonal force like electricity. It doesn't work. You can only have fellowship with a person. And thus the Holy Spirit is the person of God. He's the person of the Trinity. And if he's just God in disguise, please tell me why Paul mentioned him at all. May the grace of Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of God be with you all. Sounds kind of redundant to me, but Paul chose to include the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Paul recognizes that the Holy Spirit is a separate person. He's distinct from God. He has his own will, and he even intercedes on behalf of the saints between himself and and God. He hears the prayers of the saints, and he takes those prayers, and he passes them right back up to God, and he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Paul tells us this in Romans and in other places, right? The Spirit intercedes on our behalf. So he has to be a separate person in order to, to play the intercessory role. And the fact that he's sent from the Father as the paraclete, I'm sorry, sent from the Father and the Son, um, right? The whole filioque debate all over again, tells me that um, the fact that he can be dispatched, that it's not 100% God the Spirit, who, who is a whole spirit, who is pure spirit. So let's keep reading this author. Let's go for another five or seven minutes or so. This author says, it's fascinating the statements addressed to the Corinthians regarding the inner relationship between the Spirit and God the Father and the Father and the Spirit. Listen, quote, the Spirit, this is what I was just alluding to a moment ago. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. How is it possible, I interject, that the Spirit can search the deep things of God? I thought the Spirit is God. Is he having this schizophrenic moment, this, this, this um, out-of-body experience, this, this split personality um, episode? You know, is he manic, where he's um, having this conversation with himself, right? He knows his own thoughts. He's talking to himself, and his tell self is talking back. Right? Is that what's going on? That isn't what's going on. Um, that is not what's going on, right? No disrespect to people who have those particular um, disorders and, and, and disabilities and things like that. I'm simply trying to draw, drive a point home. Paul, according to this author, Paul also told the members from the church room that, quote, 
He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. So according to Paul, in those two passages that I just mentioned in Corinthians and Romans, the Spirit not only searches God's Spirit, right, or God, uh, uh, how did the author put it, or Paul put it, um, he knows the thoughts of God, um, but the Spirit knows the, uh, God knows the mind of the Spirit, and that's where the intercession takes place. So again, we're talking about a separate person, who is at work and yet has the same powers and abilities and attributes that God the Father himself has, right? The Spirit has all knowledge, just like God himself has all knowledge. The Spirit himself must be eternal. He must not have been created by God. And he doesn't merely exist in the mind of God as if it's God's own Spirit um, doing all of these actions like searching himself or uh, uh, having an an intercessory uh, uh, session with himself or something like that. It doesn't work. Paul is describing in its most natural sense a third person of the divine Godhead. Let's continue. We're almost done here. I'll read maybe these last two paragraphs and then we'll call it quits. This author says, and what can be said about the inner relationship between the spirit and Jesus Christ's son? Two persons. Let's read. The Corinthians, I'm sorry, the Christians in Corinth would give us a prompt answer. Paul had warned them, quote, no one who is speaking by the spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 12. Now, again, if there were just, if God's Holy Spirit was only the Spirit of Jesus, like some, I can't remember which Christians teach that the Spirit of God is really just the Spirit of Jesus. It might be the one that's Pentecostals. I have to go back and do my research one more time. But there's a branch of Christianity out there that basically thinks that the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. There's no really true Spirit of God. But if that's the case, then how is it that the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed? I mean, what is it? Is he cursing himself? Um, Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is Lord, I'm sorry, by except by the Holy Spirit. We're clearly talking about at least two people there. Uh, Paul wasn't confused. It's we who are the ones that end up being confused. Let's finalize just to look at this author's commentary uh, tonight with this final paragraph. Paul addressing the believers in Rome sums up in one single verse the triune relationship of the Godhead in the believer's life. What does he say? You are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So notice that Paul seamlessly, we looked at this, and this is why I did the extended excursus in Romans chapter 8. Paul seamlessly interweaves the three persons together in this idea of inside of us as believers, we have been um, filled with the Spirit. And the word Spirit there can be either be referring to the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ or the Holy Spirit as a third person. So in one sense, we have simply the one God who has taken up residency within us, right? He lives inside of us. God lives in us. But there are times when the articulation of that uh, relationship of the Spirit inside of us is articulated using God the Father's as the person. Sometimes it's God the Son as that person, and sometimes it's God the Holy Spirit that's that person. Other times it's simply God, which might be kind of like the class name or the um the 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 the, the kind name or the um the species name if you want to uh, use that kind of uh, mindset when you're trying to figure out God versus Elohim versus Yahweh versus 
Jehovah versus Jesus versus all those kind of breakdowns. I have this discussions with um, sacred neighbors all the time where they try to school me and explain to me that, well, God is not a name, it's a title. Jehovah is his name or Yahweh or however the tetragrammaton name is pronounced by that particular denomination that I'm dealing with. But so God is like this kind of species that the being uh, is attributed, you know, that's his species as it were, like the species of humans is, of man is humans. So God is the species word, Elohim, whatever in the, in the Hebrew, uh, Theos in the Greek. But the name of this being whose species is Elohim, his name is YHVH, Yahweh, Jehovah, Adonai, whatever. So Elohim is just a title. All right, all right. Given that concept, when we say that God comes to dwell in us, we're kind of saying that the being, the species comes to dwell within us. And we don't have to give it a name like Yahweh or Yeshua or the Holy Spirit unless we want to, unless the verse says so. So that's kind of what some how some people interact with the Romans passages. I'm not entirely opposed to that description since there seems to be a little bit of, of uh, logical um uh, that seems to make give a little bit of logical credibility so um i'm not too harsh on those analogies but uh this author continues uh, i'm sorry just remember that paul doesn't give all these philosophical explanations he doesn't jump into what hebrews call hashkafa which is philosophy he simply just tells you what god told him to write and the philosophical version of it is developed hundreds of years later uh, by the church fathers. But Paul himself, he just writes what he writes in, and he just says it's a mystery. This author continues, and I'll close with this. It is remarkable how Paul puts in a nutshell the impact of God's triune activities on the believer's life. God, Christ, and the Spirit work together in the life of those who are in Jesus. This triune operation means life for the believer, the kind of life resulting from the actions of the triune God. And so that's kind of it in a nutshell. If you read through the New Testament, new, through the New Testament, and you're careful to watch out for these, um, the way that the language of the Bible interacts with this triune God, you'll find that um, Paul will write, since he's the one who wrote most of the New Testament, he'll write sometimes that God is doing something um, unique and special in the believer's life. And then other times he'll write that Jesus, by his very spirit, is doing something special and unique in the believer's life. And then at other times he'll describe it as the Holy Spirit doing something special and unique in the believer's life. But at the end of the day, Paul is only describing one God. One God. Not three gods, but three persons in the unique kind of economic roles that they play and the way it impacts us as believers. We'll pick this up again next week, but that'll do it for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Uh, I think I'll make the um, uh, liturgy very, very short. Uh, Jeremiah 31, um, uh, 31, I'll develop this over time, so I'll just read one verse tonight. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, we read about this new covenant that God's making with the house of Israel. Obviously, Gentiles are within the purview of this new covenant because Yeshua um, explains in the Gospels that this new covenant is ratified by the shedding of his blood. And so, even though this new covenant is made with Israel in the house of Judah, it envisions the Gentiles. We won't read about them tonight. We'll just read about Israel. But we'll start us out just with one verse tonight. Jeremiah 31, 31. Uh, in English, over on the left side of the page, ESV reads, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So a new covenant is going to be ratified with a people group, 
And it's important that the Gentiles find their place in the covenant by relationship to this existing people group. He doesn't say I'm making a covenant with the Gentiles. And that's a kicker. That's a that's a that's a deal breaker. If Gentiles aren't uh, included in the covenant membership under the umbrella of Israel, then where are they to be found? Where do the prophets speak of bringing Israel? Of, I'm sorry, of bringing the Gentiles in? He doesn't say, "Behold, the days are coming," declares the Lord, "that I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, and the nations." Well, then it must be that the that the nations are included somehow within the um, scope of Israel in the house of Judah. The Hebrew over on the right side of the page says, That's the uh, liturgy from the Tanakh. And in uh, the Apostolic Scriptures, we'll just pick on um, uh, one verse as well. I'm going to start in verse 10 of chapter 3 of Galatians and eventually read 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14 for our liturgy, um, as we're looking at in the uh, Shema study, this idea of faith and faithfulness, the Gentiles are included in the people group of God and the new covenant because they are being brought into the family of God by faith, not by works of the law and the conversion policy of the first century. And Paul expresses it this way in Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Why? For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. The quote is from the Torah, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things. It's actually from the book of Deuteronomy. The key to understanding this verse is that Part of what God expects of his people when he gave them the commandments is genuine faith in God, which leads to genuine faith in Messiah. What did Yeshua say in John 14, 1? Believe in God, believe also in me. So if you don't believe in me, then it's proof that you don't believe in God, and therefore you are cursed because you're not doing everything that's written in the book of the law. One of the things that's commanded of you is to have genuine faith in God, which will lead to genuine faith in me. I'm Yeshua talking. Thus, if you're not following after faith in God, which leads to faith in Messiah, then you are cursed because you're relying on self-effort, i.e. works of the law. The Greek over on the right side of the page of verse 10 says, Hasoi gar ex ergo namu, eisen hupakataren, eisen gegraptai, gar, hati epakataratas, pas hos uk emene, pasen tois gegramenois into biblio, to namu, to poiesai auta. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn now instead to the short little video, and then right after the video's over, we'll just dismiss in prayer, okay? You guys ready? Here we go. Short questions, short answers by Torah teacher Ariel and eBible. As I mentioned earlier, the questions belong to them and the answers belong to me. And that's the way we play nicely. Here's the question for us tonight. What are the laws referred to in Galatians 2.21 that cannot make us right with God? Let's take a look at that tonight. 
Let's read Galatians 2.21 real quick again. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's rendered from the ESV version. What is this righteousness? Understanding Paul's words requires digging into the social and religious background of the Judaisms of his day, as well as allowing for special nuances on words like law and circumcision, to name a few. This verse is no exception. Even though he uses the word law, which is namos in the Greek, in this verse he doesn't necessarily mean the Torah proper, that is the five books of Moses. So we're going to basically exegete this phrase law tonight. Although it is true, theologically, that keeping the law cannot make one forensically righteous before God. We've got to understand that from the word go. In other words, keeping the law cannot save you. However, Paul would not have to make such a disclaimer, in my opinion, because Judaism has never taught such a concept. I think that's a straw man made by other people. To be sure, Paul's Judaisms were not teaching this either. So, what was Paul's nuanced use of the word law in this verse referring to? Bringing his arguments of the previous verses, and indeed the chapter as we have it, to a close, I say that Paul was again reinforcing the truth that the righteousness of God is attained for an individual at Christ's expense and not through the rubrics of a man-made conversion ceremony, read here as through the law. Now, the law in question is the oral tradition of the first century and popular social belief that only Jewish Israel can inherit blessings in the world to come, i.e. salvation. It's a belief formerly held to by the apostle himself. To be sure, if being declared righteous, which is understood to be primarily forensic but including behavioral as well, if that could be achieved via the flesh, that is being born Jewish or converting to Judaism, then truly what need would there be for a Messiah to come and provide it later for anyone, right? Paul would have the reader to understand that such righteousness is altogether outside of human achievement and therefore must be procured by surrendering to the power of the anointed one of God. So, in summary, Paul's not really talking about any law of God in verse 21 per se. What he's arguing against is the first century Jewish misunderstanding that covenant membership into Israel, which was tantamount to salvation, since Jews believed that they were the only ones going to heaven. This salvation was granted only to those with legally identifiable Jewish identity, thus granting such a person access to and responsibility of maintaining obedience to the Torah, a document they believed was given only and exclusively to Jewish Israel. Are you following along with me? As shocking and wrong as we may find it today, the first century Jew basically believed in religious and social superiority in God's eyes based on Jewish identity and access to the Torah. If a Gentile wanted in, he had to convert to become a Jew and take his place among the ranks of other good standing Torah-keeping Jews. In a word, Jewish identity, quote, saved him, end quote, got him into the covenant, and Torah keeping kept him in. That's kind of the way they felt it worked. So, frequently when Paul uses the word law in Galatians, he often does not simply mean the five books of Moses, but rather he means a form of Jewish nationalism and devotion that was based on and grounded in the five books of Moses. 
Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. That'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name and thank you for the opportunity uh, that is before me week after week to be able to share my thoughts with the students, to be able to clarify parts of the text that you have revealed to me and that you've helped me to understand. Um, Lord, I don't have a perfect understanding, but I thank you for the responsibility of um, sharing that, which does make sense to me. Help me, Lord, to continue to apply myself uh, using the tools and the giftings that you've given to me as a Bible teacher, uh, continue to help me to press in, to um, uh, continue to stretch myself and to grow and avail myself of the power of the Holy Spirit because he is the one that's going to explain it to me. No amount of clever um, exegesis on my part is going to um, unlock the meaning of the text to me. I recognize that he is the one that explains it to me and reveals the words to me. So thank you, Lord, that you are faithful even when I'm lazy and when I'm unfaithful. You are the one who helps me to um, uh, uh, see the light and the truth in your word. Uh, help me to continue to uh, make practical application of that which I'm learning. I'm not just learning for academic sake and to, you know, to put knowledge in my head, but I want to live a life that's pleasing you. And so help me to continue to press in uh, for that reason. Thank you for all the students who join me week after week for their faithfulness, for their generosity, for their prayers and support and things like that. Lord, it's it's really a blessing to be able to reach out to people around the world using this particular medium. So bless them where they're at. Continue to uh, raise them up and keep them safe and um, help them to be a witness wherever they're at in their, in their uh, individual circles of influence. Bring us back together next week and we'll be careful to give the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen.